you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 83 of Reclaiming the Faith. This is Church Discipline Part 2, my interview with Phil Patillo. I'm your host, Phil Baker, and I just thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. Here in episode 83, Phil begins to really break down the stages of church discipline based out of Matthew 18. And also, I just want to encourage you to check out the show notes where you can find links to uh, all of Phil Patillo's sermons, and they have been a big blessing to me, and I know they will be a blessing to you as well. If you haven't had a chance to check out my new album, Babylon, you can do that uh, on iTunes or Amazon, Spotify, anywhere that you have. Uh, You can find streaming services. You'll find it there. And if it's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a rating and review on those sites. Also, I want to encourage you to check out my Patreon page patreon.com slash Phil S. Baker. I put out two videos every month. One would be a description of an early Christian or an early Christian writing. And then I also do an acoustic version of one of my original songs every month. And you can get that for uh, $5 or more a subscription to Patreon. Also, I have put uh, wave files of all of my songs from my latest album, Babylon, they're on the Patreon page. So if you become a Patreon, not only do you get those uh, two videos every month, you also get all of my songs from Babylon. So check that out, please. And uh, you can find all of my information, my book, blog, podcast, Patreon, music, all that stuff on my website, philsbaker.com. So please check that out. And if this episode is a blessing to you, please consider leaving a rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. All right. Well, I am blessed to be a part of Justin Falls and West Falls Fourth Watch Radio Network. And I'm also blessed to be a regular contributor on BDK's Omega Frequency channel uh, on YouTube. So please check that out. Monthly, we do a Q&A show called Ready With An Answer, a live Q&A show where uh, you can tune in and ask your questions about scripture or ethics there. And we will be sure to answer that live on the Omega Frequency YouTube channel. Also, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can find on Scroll Publishing's website, scrollpublishing.com, and you can purchase it for a mere $5. All right, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get episode 83, Church Discipline Part 2 with Phil Patillo, rolling. Um, let's read, let's read our passage and then we'll work our way through it. Um, the Matthew 18 passage again. Yes. Gotcha. Uh, Jesus, Jesus has started Matthew 18 talking about entering the kingdom as a child. Hmm. And then he moves on starting in verse seven to avoiding being a stumbling block to others. The context is just building for this. And then he goes in verses 12 and 14 to the importance that the father places on recovering one who has gone astray. And then with that, with that local context, we come to verse 15. And the Lord Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Uh, One point right off the bat, some 
translations, most translations will follow what I have just read in the New American Standard. But some translations begin, uh, and if your brother sins against you. That's New Revised Standard. Uh, King James does that too. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, it's difficult to tell whether or not that addition should be there. Yeah. Uh, if it is, the only big difference it makes is it more closely identifies the one who goes to the offender as the one who was offended. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if it's not there, then uh, I have seen, I have witnessed a brother sinning, and it is my both right privilege and responsibility uh, to go to him. That would be like the Galatians 6 passage as well. If someone is caught in a trespass. There you go, man. Yeah. Caught in a trespass. Great. (laughs) So let's, let's go through this. And the first thing we need to notice is this. The spark that initiates church discipline is sin. And I'll say now, that this process can only end in roughly two ways. One is uh, a reconciliation of the brother who sinned, or possibly in step two, it could end if these additional witnesses, as we'll speak about in a moment, convince the accuser that they were wrong. Otherwise, um, it leads to nothing that uh, is going to be enjoyable for the offender. So let's, let's look through verse 15. If your brother sins, this is an important point. It doesn't say, if my brother, I just can't get along with him. Or if I have unreconcilable differences with my brother, then I am to go to him. Uh, This is not about me. It's not about uh, compatibility. It's about sin and restoring a brother from sin. It's like the difference between Paul's confrontation with Peter and Paul's disagreement with Barnabas. Oh, great. That's terrific, man. I had never considered that. Fantastic. So the next thing Jesus says, and if your brother sins, go. I take that to mean a face-to-face conversation. In today's world, we are blessed with myriad ways of communicating with each other, email, text, uh, I think none of those provides the intimacy that uh, we need to begin this conversation. Furthermore, just a little further along, uh, Jesus speaks of reproving him in private. So I think uh, at this point, we begin the respect for the privacy of uh, the conversation. Hmm. Now, having said that, uh, I need to throw this in at some point. Regarding privacy, um, I should at no point promise the offender um, absolute confidentiality. Mm. In fact, if I'm going to follow the process, I can't. Right. Because if he and I fail in step one, step two is to bring others into the picture. So if I want to say anything, the best that I can say is that I can assure him that on my part, no one except those who need to know will be informed. So I go to my brother. The next step 
according to uh, verse 15, is to reprove him or show him his fault. Now, this word means to convince him. I am not there to judge him. I am there to convict him that there, that this sin or what I have seen to be a sin has occurred and let that begin the conversation. So like we've spoken. Can I get some clarification? Because, you know, in our society, if you are showing someone their fault, that is equated with judging them. Oftentimes, not always, but it, it often is. And so like, yes, um, this is an, an analogy that I've used before and tell me what you think. Um, I, I've given the analogy of a court reporter and uh, it's just, just typing everything up. And sometimes the judge will say, can you read that back for me? And it may be something that's like pointing out a fault, you know, based on the testimony in the trial of someone, but a court reporter is just reading that back. The court reporter is not doing any kind of, they're not being judgmental unless they, oh, great. unless they add to or detract from the judge, you know, but um, it, do you think that's, that's a fair analogy that we need to try to be like court yeah. reporters? This is what the judge has said. This is the behavior that I've seen. Yes. No, that's great, man. And, and I think it would also apply, Phil, to the witnesses that occurs in, occur in step two. That's, I think that's a good picture to paint. Um, and speaking of a uh, court picture, uh, another way I think in today's society that we can ease this, particularly if I'm in a church that is just initiating church discipline as a process, um, something that I can do on my part is to presume that this offender is guilty, uh, is innocent until proven guilty. Right. Um, I can go to him and say, man, I saw this and it looks bad, but I don't know that it's bad. Can we talk about this? Uh, something to um, open the conversation in a non-threatening way. We have to be serious. I think I saw something, man. But we can give this brother or sister the benefit of the doubt uh, at the beginning of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, I know that going to someone, confronting someone with their sin is not an easy thing to do. And I actually think this is a healthy thing. This fear is a healthy thing built into the process. Before I confront someone, uh, if I feel any hesitation, I need to understand uh, maybe he has, maybe I'm blowing this up more than it should be. Uh, maybe I should just work on myself and my tolerance for uh, the, the characters that others may display that aren't like my character, rather than being offended at everything. Uh, so I think, it's, I think it's a healthy point for me to say to myself, uh, this could be a long struggle. Is this sin? Yeah. Am I just offended? Like you were saying before, is there just something in their personality yeah. that rubs me the wrong way? Or did they, did they say something maybe accidentally that is wrong, but it's not a sin. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that's right, man. They, there may be something that has happened in my life that they triggered with a comment mm. and the comment itself was innocent. Yeah. But given this particular time in my life, uh, that really hurt. Yeah. No, great. Cool. Do you want to get into uh, the, the word listen? Like you've, re you've reproved them. 
but what does it mean for them to listen? What does that look like? Uh, to me, uh, we're, we're going to hit this in a minute. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, no. They, uh, I need to create an atmosphere. I, we need to bend over backwards, Phil. Uh, I need to create an atmosphere where this individual feel, feels uh, nearly threatened, talked down to, put down, because at this point in the conversation, uh, I really don't know that anything is wrong. That's the purpose of this not taking place in public is so that no one partially overhears something that may be no issue at all. I want to keep them from feeling so defensive. I'm looking for his, yeah, I'm looking for his listening. Uh, it, oh, if I see this sudden look of concern on his face, that's good. If I see a certain look of anger on his face, I've probably misstepped in some way or we really need to keep going. Yeah. Uh, and then the final thing, I've already mentioned this once, is that uh, I reprove him in private. This is a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Uh, the only exceptions that I can think of in today's world are if for some reason uh, a woman must approach a man, not her husband, or vice versa. A man must approach a woman who is not his wife. Uh, I know that my wife, Linda, has gone to um, individuals to uh, strike such a conversation, and she has taken with her a man who is not me. So once again, the individual does not feel threatened. He understands this is not the Patillos against him or something like that. And she will explain to him why she has brought this additional person. I think we have more. Uh, I, I don't want in any way to bend scripture, but we probably have more conversation between both sexes in today's world than was uh, appropriate in the first century. I'm moving on to step two, which is covered in verse 16. So, and the first question that arises, go ahead, Phil. I was just going to ask, were you going to talk about the listening aspect, how we know if they listened in step two or when did you want to no, cover maybe that? Maybe you should. Uh, yeah. Maybe you should talk about that now, man. Well, I just wanted, cause I, I, that has to imply some type of repentance. Oh, I see. Yes. Yes. Hopefully it doesn't and, get uh, to yes, step I, two. And so what would be evidence that we don't need to move to step two? Great. No, uh, good. You're reading my mind there. Okay. Uh, because the big question is, when do you go to step two? Right. And the answer is, it could be weeks. It could be months. The rule is, as long as the individual is open to discussion and conversation, you should probably not go to step two. Uh, now, if... If they're open to conversation and they're continuing the sin, uh, that's a different matter. But if whatever um, initiated the conversation has stopped and you two are just working through this, uh, it takes as long as necessary before you bring in the two witnesses. So... Um uh, with your point on the law of no zero, would that apply with this as well? Like the negative behavior has been replaced with a positive behavior, not just the negative behavior stopping. Oh, there you go, man. Um, uh, 
if, you know, um, Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Right. And uh, a, a sign of winning my brother would be um, restoration on the spot, uh, not just stopping, but acting in some positive way for correction. The matter could end right there. I Is appreciate that, that. Yeah, 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 man. Okay. Because hopefully this kind of stuff is uh, happening more regularly in the body of Christ. Kind of like in a marriage. You know, you, you have two people yeah. coming together as one. There's going to be conflict and the same with the church. But hopefully like a good marriage, you're talking about this stuff and there's repentance. Like, you know, I, I forgot to fold my clothes and I told you I would. I'm sorry. And now I'm going <laughs> to fold my clothes this time. You see that actually happening. No, great, man. And um, just to feed off of, of your good thought, uh, I think it will be I think it will be easier as the church grows in the disciplining process. People will get used to it mm. uh, and recognize that, uh, hey, he's he or she is just doing this for my benefit. Mm. Uh, I need to listen. Yeah. I, it should uh, I can remember the first conversations that Linda and I had in our marriage were a lot more tense <laughs> than uh, the conversations are now. Usually mm. we we introduce it in some uh, any conflict we have in some sort of funny manner, you know, just to uh, uh, signal to the other where we're headed. Yeah. This, okay, this is kind of funny, but I have something serious to say to you. Yeah. That's good. Let's say that uh, you, you and the other individual who the offender cannot agree. Uh, I think we've made it clear by now. The law knows zero. Uh, agreeing to disagree is insufficient. It is not a satisfactory position. Because a sin has been committed, and there are very few sins uh, that don't affect other people. We, it needs to be resolved in a positive way. And so the next step is the escalation uh, to witnesses. Verse 16 says in Matthew chapter 18, if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Uh, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Uh, Within Israel, a single witness cannot rise up against a man um, on account of it. Any sin he has committed, the evidence includes two or three witnesses. And we will see this principle of two or three witnesses continue throughout the rest of our discussion. Uh, so let's talk about these witnesses for a minute. Um, they are probably often not witnesses to the sin. And uh, in this case, they, that is not their purpose. Their purpose is to be witnesses to the process, the progress in the disciplining process. They are the ones that are going to have to report later, here's what we saw, here's what was said, uh, this is why this did not stop at this level. Should a So the first thing... I was just going to ask, Go ahead. maybe you're going to answer this. So I apologize if I'm getting, you know, in front of you and tell me, and then you can do your thing. Uh, in, in that Deuteronomy 19 passage, um, it talks about a malicious witness in verse 16. If a malicious witness comes forward to accuse someone of wrongdoing, then both parties of the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. It's like the two or three witnesses kind of thing, right? And then, right. and the judges shall make a thorough inquiry. 
So my, my question is, do you think that Jesus has that in mind with the two or three witnesses that come that they need to not just listen, but really get into it, dive into this and do an investigation there because this may be a false Um, accusation. And that's probably a a claim that the person who's being accused is going to make. They're lying about me. Right. Uh, No, you're exactly right, Phil. Uh, If, if, if uh, the process escalates to this point, we probably have a he said, he said mm-hmm. conversation going on. And uh, the witnesses uh, are assuming a pretty big responsibility. Uh, if, if you were asked to be a witness in such a process, uh, I, an individual needs to understand that if they're called to be a witness, they are assuming uh, a large responsibility. In fact, um, that you're, once again, your insight was fantastic in Deuteronomy 16. Um, Jay Adams goes as far as to say, if, if the process has reached this stage and the original two people cannot agree then by Galatians 6, 1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Jay Adams says that it is up to the witnesses to carry on the process. Hmm. Uh, but, and I think the reason, we're going back to the law of no zero, if these two men just walk away and say, well, we failed, uh, that's exactly what they did. They failed. And we can't let it stop there. They're they're just at a point of zero when we enter step two. And to be successful, this disciplining process has to end with a positive outcome. It seems to me, as you're saying this, that these witnesses really need to take on the mindset of um, the angel of the Lord that Joshua encounters with the sword. And Joshua's like, are you on our side or the enemy's side? And the guy, the angel's like, no, neither one, right? I'm on God's side. And that, cause I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in the mindset of both parties. Both parties are going to have that. Are you with me? You're with me, right? You're not with them. And they need to do their absolute best to make it very clear that they are impartial other than being partial for the Lord. No, you're exactly, you're exactly right, man. These witnesses are working for the Lord. They are not working for either party. Uh, now, the, the witnesses will probably be suggested by the one who brought up the offense, mm. but uh, that individual should pick um, witnesses who are agreeable to the offender or this is going nowhere. Uh, this brings up another point. Uh, at some point in here, so far this has been one-on-one, at some point in here, the, the church leadership needs to be informed. Is this a point? And I'm personally not sure it is. There is nothing in Scripture that I know of that says these witnesses have to be, for example, elders. And it may be that if I were to pull in elders at this point, the intimidation of there being church leadership uh, might derail any progress that has been made at that point. I think the number one qualification for a witness is compatibility with both the parties. Mm. Both the parties agree that this is an honest person. Mm. It's someone that uh, I trust to give an honest answer and maybe tell me yes or no, you're right or wrong. Mm. Um, I think that that's all I had to say on the two witnesses, Phil, unless you had something. No, that's good, man. Okay. All right. Let's say now that once again, we have reached no resolution. The process could stop here. If 
either the offender, the potential offender, has been convinced that not only has he sinned, but that he needs to be in some way counseled or brought to um, repentance, then success. If the person bringing the offense has been convinced that uh, he's wrong, either the witnesses do not see it or the witnesses uh, decide that uh, this is not an offense or or that the one who brought it, it was incorrect in, in his estimate, then the process could stop. Uh, there's no sin. But let's say that neither of those happen. Let's say that uh, even through the discussion with the two witnesses uh, who are now fully equipped to approach church leadership with um, fair views of the process, we're ready to move to step three. Now, step three is verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Uh, here, um, I would want to include what I think is a good insight by Jay Adams. Uh, and that is, he inserts an intermediate step where at this point, if they have not already, as one of the witnesses, uh, we bring the leadership of the church into the process. Um, we have scriptural precedent for that. I'll just give one example. I'm going to the book of uh, Deuteronomy, chapter 31. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, I'm going to read two verses, verse 28 and verse 30. Uh, verse 28 says to Moses, Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. And then in verse 30, we read, Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. It appears that originally we have the word elders and uh, then they are being allowed to um, take the place of the nation as a whole. And so uh, eventually we may end up in front of the whole church. But I think uh, the step of this intermediate step of taking things before church leadership is good, particularly given the difference between the size of churches in uh, today's world, for the most part in the United States, and uh, the size of churches in the first century. Um, taking it before the whole church in the first century might be, have been before 20 to 40 people. Here we have churches with hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. And to accelerate from a group of three or four up to uh, this gigantic assembly of people, uh, I'm afraid uh, might again derail the process. So, a possible addition in there, insertion, would be to uh, bring the matter before the elders of the church or the leadership of the church. Once again, let's say no resolution can be reached. The individual is unrepentant. The witnesses uh, have judged that, yes, there is a sin to be reckoned with here. Then we are left with verse 17. 
bring it before the church. Now, uh, there are a few practical matters here that um, I think are important. Number one, if we bring this matter before the church and the church has never heard a message, a seminar, a weekend retreat on church discipline, uh, we should not expect good things to happen. Uh, either at this time, and that would be bad if it were at this time, hopefully before this incident has happened, the church has been given uh, instruction in the biblical principles of church discipline. Can I ask two questions? Oh, I'm sorry. No, sure. you do, do your second no, point, point and then I'll, then I'll come to you. Okay. And the second point is brief. It is just to remind the congregation of the seriousness of the issue and the fact that they are the last resort. So my questions are who brings the matter to the church and how do they bring the matter to the church? Like, how is it presented? Okay, great. Uh, the, the second part, I think, is easier than the first. Uh, the second part is the church. It should not be done on Sunday morning. Uh, this should be a closed meeting held not on Sunday to members of the congregation only. Some sort of proof needed to get into the room. Uh, we must, this, everything accelerates at this point. And all of a sudden, uh, knowledge of the details of this incident are, are going to be widespread. So we have to be very, very careful here. Uh, if, the, if this intermediate step of uh, the church leadership um, has happened, it might be that the church leadership would uh, bring this before the congregation. The person most involved in this, other than the offender, is the person in, who brought the offense. And it might be that they are the one, he is the one to bring it before the church. Or perhaps the most um, unbiased group to bring the incident and bring it almost in the form of a report would be the, the witnesses. Uh, I don't know of anywhere, Phil, that we are given guidance on right. that, with the exception of something we'll talk about later, and that is if an elder is a person to be disciplined. There we are given some instruction. Yeah. But at this point, uh, from, from the words of Christ Jesus here, um, uh, nothing is said. So I can see where, depending on the size of the church, the level of the offense, the um, the demeanor of the offender, uh, and the the um, familiarity of the church with the witnesses, I could see where where any of the three groups the the original accuser, the witnesses, or the church leadership could faithfully serve in this role of bringing it before the church. Now, um, in the bringing it before the church, obviously like the witnesses, the two witnesses have probably become privy to the, you know, the, just the, the details, <laughs> very, you know, gruesome kind of stuff. Um, but, Perhaps, but um, what about the church? Do you think that they need to hear like a real detail thing, or do you think um, they should the, the people presenting the report should speak a little bit more in generalities? 
great. Um, I, it, I think it's going to depend on what goes on at this meeting. Uh, the minimum, there are some minimum things that are required. Um, I'm going to Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. I'm reading uh, first verse 14. Paul says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Um, my take from this verse, uh, I'm, I can also read right now Romans chapter 16, verse 17. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Uh, I think uh, minimum, at every step, minimum information should be shared. Uh, here, uh, the offender does need to be identified uh, by name. Uh, I think uh, the church should be informed that the offender is uh, no longer to be afforded uh, normal church fellowship. Can I ask uh, a quick question on that? Yes. Maybe I'm wrong. It, it, as I'm looking at Matthew 18 um, in, uh, in verse 17, if the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be treated then as a Gentile, a tax collector. So my question is um, twofold. One, do you think the offender should be present at that meeting with the church gathered together? And yes. two, and two, yeah, before they announced no association. Do you think the church is then given the responsibility of, as a body, giving a final plea to the person to listen? Yeah, um, that those are those are great um, thoughts, Phil. Particularly with the church in America today, uh, because of church size. Uh, you could just see a meeting with, uh, let's say, a thousand members show up, uh, how things could get totally out of hand. Mm -hmm. uh, my impression is at this first closed meeting, the church is informed of the name of the offender. The church is informed that for example, the offender will not be allowed uh, to take communion. Um, and the church is informed that uh, the offender is, is uh, I don't want to say being counseled, but that, but that he is in conversation with church leadership and that any conversation that I, as a church member, have with him should be with regard to that. Um, Joe is being disciplined. Uh, Joe is a good friend of mine. He calls me up. We we usually play golf every Saturday or something like this. We uh, have some sort of... Um, get together. Uh, so Joe calls. Uh, my response to Joe should be, uh, brother, I would really like to do that. But with your position right now uh, of being in this, in the process of church discipline, I would be happy to discuss that with you if you like. But uh, otherwise, I think we would be better served if we let the church discipline process take its place. Um, when 
I'm, I'm speaking from my view, my vision, Phil, that uh, by the time something like this reaches the church body, um, we have had two, possibly three levels of confrontation and without repentance. Uh, and by this time, unless it is an extremely unusual situation, it has become obvious, obvious that the sin really happened. It's just making me think more and more about the advice that you gave to leaders who are considering starting to implement this to like train their congregation first on every step of this, because like you're, you're exhibiting like a real sensitivity with this hypo or mythical person, Joe, you know, whoever that is, um, not treating them as if they're dead. You know, I have no, I have no friend anymore. You're calling right. him, bro you're calling him brother. Um, and you're really appealing to, I mean, you desire to have a conversation with him, but there, there's some, there are rules here. This is what we're going to talk about. I'd like to get together with you. You're really appealing to him. You're not cutting him completely out. You bet, man, because uh, when we talk later about restoration, uh, he has to understand that the church's arms are always open. I mean, we, we have to, we have to leave the door open for him to return if he, re if he decides to return. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, it's tough, but Joe has to understand that something significant has happened between now and the last time we played golf, yeah. for example. But this is a big deal. Um, you know, I, Phil, this would be a good point with what you just said for me to remind us of one thing. Uh, I'm going to read uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. Mm. You shall not Hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The second of the great commandments uh, finds itself located in a conversation about discipline. And so I think paramount in our minds as just church members who have finally been exposed to this process that has been taking place in as much secrecy as possible, that we need to we need to be ready ready to love this guy, but we need to be ready uh, not to interrupt the discipline process. Yeah, it makes me think of the Galatians. I believe it's Galatians six passage after um, the discipline aspect. It talks about do good to all people, especially of those who belong to the household of faith. Oh, great. Right, but that good great. involves what he said previously in the chapter. And uh, um, I'm sorry, man, go ahead. No, no, uh, I interrupted you, man, because, um, uh, you know, we, we have read verse one of chapter six that, that, that brought this to your mind. Uh, verse two says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Um, of a mutual friend of yours and mine, uh, an ex-Marine, uh, gave me a beautiful picture of this. Uh, if you think of a squad, of uh, a military squad, everybody has their own load to carry, but there are a couple of guys in the squad that have the heavier weapons, 
that may need help, for example, carrying the ammunition for those weapons. So I've got my own load to carry, but I also need to bear others' burdens in this team that we call the body of Christ. No, that's really good. And I believe Paul says in like the next verse, it's either three or four, how it talks about basically, uh, because one day we need, we need to carry each other's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. Cause one day nobody's going to be able to help you. You're going to have to carry right. your own load. And that comes back to that. Love your neighbor as yourself stuff. And when you were quoting the Leviticus uh, 19 passage, I was thinking about Romans 13, where Paul says, leave no debt outstanding except the continual debt to love one another. Right. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. We have a debt to the Lord. <laughs> right. <laughs> to do that. And that's so, it's so hard to when, when we feel like we've been wronged uh, to, to not want to, it's so hard to not want to take vengeance into our own hands. And now we're getting into Romans 12, right? <laughs> but as far yes. as it depends on us to be at peace with people. And so we need to really try to um, push toward that reconciliation, like you've been talking about. And restoration. Um, both times, Bill, um, in First Corinthians five, when Paul separated uh, that individual from the church, and in First uh, Timothy, I'm trying to remember uh, what chapter of First Timothy it is, where where once more Paul has. Uh, Delivered someone to Satan. Separated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, both times, both in in First Corinthians chapter five, when when Paul removes a man from the Corinthian church, and in First Timothy chapter one verse twenty. Yeah. When uh, Amineus and Alexander have been delivered to Satan. Uh. In both cases, Paul expresses the fact that he wants a positive outcome. Right. Uh, you know, uh, they, it's a bad situation, but Paul still has in mind their eventual restoration. Yeah. Okay. Let's say that all fails. All failing, everything failing is uh, bad for the individual because uh, being removed from actual fellowship in the church, which is the last part of verse 17, where he is to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector, he can still attend church. We, we have unbelievers attending church. They're welcome to attend church. But there is only one thing we want to talk about with him, and that is salvation. Uh, and if he gets offended, uh, I just have to uh, be, I have to love him enough to say, brother, you're not showing evidence of a Christian lifestyle. So I'm just assuming you're an unbeliever. We're turning this individual over to the two people who hate him most, the world and Satan. And we should expect for him to be treated roughly. Now, uh, we have an example of this situation in um, 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes the people of Corinth, about an individual who has been disciplined. Uh, there's disagreement between commentators over whether this is the same individual from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or another individual. But either way, we can see that, that uh, our, our fellow church member has had a rough go. And Paul says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority 
so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. I, th- I see and I've, I've taken my instruction from um, Adam's book, three principles here for an individual who has been put out of the church, but has now repented and wants to come back into the fellowship. And the first one uh, that Paul mentions is forgiveness. He wrote the, Paul wrote the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ Jesus also has forgiven you. This is going to take self-control by members of the church because uh, this man has uh, not treated the church well. He has probably left a trail of tears with members of the church, but he has now repented. And if he has repented, Paul's first word is forgiveness. It's not to put him on probation. Uh, It's not to question him. It is to forgive him. The second thing he says is to comfort him in addition to uh, to forgiveness. Now, comfort can take a number of... um, avenues. One might be, if this individual was a friend of mine, um, just to be one-on-one with him. Uh, He may want to go through his experience with someone. He may still have some non-professional counseling that he needs to go through, uh, a personal Bible study on the sin he committed or something like that. There are all sorts of ways that I might comfort him, but I am to do that. Uh, Judgment is over. That was someone else's job. My job at this point is to comfort him. And the final thing that Paul mentions is reaffirm our love. Uh, He has probably had some dark nights uh, wondering if the church will ever take him back. And now is my opportunity to show him Jesus and what the love of Jesus means. And to truly uh, disavow uh, any placement of him as being at level zero and show him uh, what a positive Christian lifestyle can be about. That's really good, man. Um, I, I happen to be in the camp that um, believes the Second Corinthians two passage is talking about the First Corinthians five passage. That's where I am. Uh, okay, and, and part of that is based on uh, the way Paul seems to bring this that issue from First Corinthians five back up in Second Corinthians seven. Okay. Um, it, it seems to, to be that, and that just may be just me, uh, my interpretation, but it's really interesting how he starts off um, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, he says, like, I boast about you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with consolation and I'm overjoyed in, our, um, in all of our affliction, you know, I'm going through, but I'm, in, I'm overjoyed because of you. And it seems in 2 Corinthians 2, that Paul's saying, and this is my interpretation again, that they did what he asked. Okay. Right? So the church repented and he's saying, man, that's, that's great. You know, you're on the right path now. And, um, and I rejoice over you. You know, you're not being arrogant anymore, basically, you know? Um, 
And then in verse nine, he says, now I rejoice. This is of chapter seven of second Corinthians. Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance or you felt a godly grief so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief or sorrow produces death. And um, so I, I, I personally see this being, uh, you know, Paul saying they need to do church discipline on this man while he's doing discipline on them. And he's basically showing them, uh, you know, the attitude to have while doing that, seeing like, I'm overjoyed with y'all. You know, he's, he's like where he can compliment them. He's doing that. And he's trying to be gentle with them now while also saying, I don't regret confronting y'all because that produced a sorrow that led to repentance and salvation in life. And that's good. And then that other line made me think of, well, the line from um, the worldly grief produces death coming back to what he was saying in chapter two, we need to bring this guy in so that he's not overcome, you know? No, fantastic. I feel, I think uh, uh, this is good for me to hear, man. I think you have a good argument that it is the same individual. Who knows? <laughs> and, yeah. And, but think, think on the bright side, think of what a, a victory that would be for the Corinthian church to uh, go from uh, this this thing that they should be ashamed of to this uh, positive application of church discipline. Yeah. So 